from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Lou Meyer a former priest who realized while teaching at a Catholic high school that he no longer believed in the tenets of his faith. He later ran into the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Lou where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Right here in Evansville. I actually was conceived in Texas where my father and mother lived for a while with my other relatives on my mother's side. But I was conceived there, but while I was in my mother's womb, I was traveling to Evansville, Indiana, where my dad had originally wanted to stay and work because he was, by a profession, a carpenter. Uh-huh. And there's a carpenter company in Evansville that he wanted to work at, and that's what they did. And how long did you live there? All right, now I am in my in my ninetieth year. So you've been in Evansville for ninety years. Spent very little of my time in Evansville, only until I graduated from high school. I went to grade school, St. Anthony's Catholic School at Parish School, and then to the Wrights Memorial High School, and then Notre Dame, Indiana for my graduations. What did you do after high school? Well, while my last year in high school is when a priest from Notre Dame, Indiana, which is not only a great university, but also the headquarters of the Provincial Holy Cross Fathers, Community of Catholic Brothers. Okay? Mm-hmm. They send around a priest junior, senior years, different high Catholic schools asking for vocations to their community. And so this priest came from Notre Dame to Wright's Memorial High School in Evansville to give us a talk about the Holy Cross Fathers at Notre Dame. Well, when I got there, I realized, as this priest told us, the priests at Notre Dame not only are famous for their teaching, but also have foreign missions, specifically in India. And when I heard that, I knew that's what I wanted to be, a missionary to India. So what was your primary incentive to be a missionary? My primary incentive was not to make converts. Now, when I come back from the missions, people ask me, oh, you've been there so many years, you must have made many 
converts to Christianity. And I would tell them I made none. I did not baptize a single person while I was overseas in the missions. Seven years in India, then later six years in Africa. And they said, well, what did you do? I said, well, I was trying simply to help these poor people to improve their way of life. Now, Lou, why did you choose the priesthood in order to do this kind of work instead of something, let's say, I don't know, a charitable organization? Well, I, I guess it's because I thought this was a charitable organization. I see. I knew that, that they did have some priests that, that were doing the, the social work that I wanted to do. I also, when I graduated from Notre Dame, in my final four years of theology, I had to take to Washington, D.C. Uh, after that, it was, it was time for me to be, to be ordained. And, uh, and then when I was ordained in 1945, I knew that I wanted to get to, to India as soon as possible. And so I went to my superiors and I said, that's where I want to go. Particularly, I was fond of Mahatma Gandhi. He was still alive at the time, okay? Mm-hmm. And I always thought, regarded him as being the most wonderful Christian, really, that he uh, ever lived. And uh, he oftentimes was asked by, by Christians, to say, why don't you become a Christian? He says, you all, always say that you're following Christ in your teaching. And, and he would say, I would like to be a Christian, but I don't see Christ in the Christian community here. Yeah. And that was an eye-opener for me. Mm-hmm. I began to realize that just because one calls oneself a Christian doesn't mean he is following the true teachings of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's what Mahatma Gandhi himself discovered. Now, Lou, being a priest is quite a commitment, celibacy being one. If devoting your life to the Catholic Church wasn't the main incentive, that was an awful big sacrifice or commitment to make in a way to go about in helping people. Well, I knew for I had heard and read about people in India were extremely poor and needed a lot of help in many ways. Also, Mother Teresa had begun her ministry in Calcutta. You know who Mother Teresa was? I do indeed. Yes, well, I also admire her greatly. And I was able to spend my last days in Calcutta working with Mother Teresa, going through Calcutta streets carrying the sick and the dying from the gutters of Calcutta into her refuge. That's the kind of thing I wanted to do. I was supposed to get back after seven years. It was a a rule. I had to get back for your sabbatical leave. And I tried to be convincing my superiors to allow me to stay in India, to let me take out citizenship papers. I wanted to stay there for the rest of my life mm-hmm. if I had done that. But I was forbidden to do that, so I had to go back to the States. 
Now tell me about your impression of Mother Teresa when you were there. Oh, she was absolutely a perfect example of a true Christian. She was out there to help other people. That's the essence of Christianity. And love is the essence of the being Christ-like. That's the only reason that Christ came, not, not to be crucified. So, getting back to Mother Teresa, you saw something in her. Yeah, I saw actually Christ would do the same thing under those circumstances. Yeah. He does, he's supposed to have done to help the poor. Yeah. The outcasts. Right. Fellow down, yeah. the really needy. Right. And I'm saying that, that is the only reason Jesus came to teach us how to be human, yeah. like we're supposed to be. And that is simply to be loving people to other others, putting other people before yourself in your daily actions in life. Mm-hmm. Lou, what is your most interesting story coming out from your Indian experience? When I first went over there, I had no idea about the language. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's the first thing a missionary has to do if you want to talk with the people to learn their language, the Bengali language of East Bengal, where I was. So I, I was assigned to one of the parishes there that was there established for many years. And the pastor says, well, when you're ready to give a sermon, I'll let you make you give the sermon in the church. Okay. So it took me almost a year before I really felt comfortable to giving a sermon. So when I did, I told my pastor, I said, can I, can I give a sermon next Sunday? I think I'm ready. He said, sure, go ahead. And I did. And during my sermon, I noticed there's an old lady sitting in the front pew of the church. And she was crying, tears running down her eyes. So I said to myself, or I thought to myself, gee, I must be really touching this person. So after the Mass, I walked down to the pew where she was sitting, still crying. I said, What's the matter here? Did, did, did that offend you some way? You're crying. She, she says, You didn't offend me, no. You, but, but, but I saw you, your little goatee on your chin. You reminded me of my pet goat who just died recently. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> but that's a true story. <laughs> oh, that's great. So you were called back from India because your time was up. Yeah. And so when you came back to the U.S., what happened? Well, when I came back from India, so I, I, I was hoping to just after one year sabbatical, during which time I was asked to just go around the country preaching in different churches, begging for money to support my missionary work. Well, I did that, and the year was up. I wanted to get back to India. And they said, well, I'm sorry, but we, we have just been informed that, that the Pope in Rome is asking us to take a new mission in Africa, in Uganda. And we need someone to volunteer for that mission. 
I said, well, if you want me to go there instead of back to India, it's okay. I'll be glad to go. So that's where I was sent. Uganda was at the time the most Christian country in Africa. I don't know what it is today. Mm-hmm. But it, it was practically half Christian. Uh, half of the Christians were Catholic and half non-Catholic, Episcopalian, Anglicans from England. And so I I was there for six years, but during that time I was also asked to start the operation of Catholic Relief Services. That's an organization for worldwide relief services by the Catholic Church. Lou, this was the birth of Catholic Relief Services? Yeah. In Uganda? In Uganda. Well, see, there was nothing like that there when I got there. Okay, but did Catholic Relief Services exist elsewhere in the world? Oh, yeah. Okay. Lots of places. All right. But not in... So you you, you were starting something new for Catholic Relief Services in Uganda. Oh, Uganda. Mm-hmm. And in order to get prepared for that, I, I visited several other African countries where they already had the Catholic Relief Services in operation, okay? Mm-hmm. When I did finish my preparation, I thought ready to get the organization going. I uh, went to the, the, the Episcopalian Bishop of Uganda, Kampala, the capital of, of Uganda, and I said, my Bishop, I'm going to start trying to get this operation going, but I can't do it without your help. I, said, I, I want to give this Catholic Relief Services aid, the things that we send overseas to help people. I want this to be a, a part of your operation as well as ours. I don't want to just do this for the Catholics. This is meant for everybody, Catholic, Protestant, or pagan, or whoever. It's for, meant for everybody. So he said... He looked at me shortly and he said, you think, you, think, you think that my missionaries are going to allow you to bring in food under the name of Catholic Relief Services? People will think, well, this is all Catholic stuff. And it will give you too much advantage over our preaching and trying to get more Protestants. You get the picture? I do. I just really needed his help. He would not give me any. And I just thought to myself, what indeed sad picture of typical interfaith fighting, quarreling, and disunity among so-called Christians. So it never really came off that well because of that. So you were not really able to get the Catholic Relief Services operation in Uganda going because of... It didn't really take... Yeah. So, Lou, can you give me another interesting story for our listeners of your time in Uganda? I picked up more tropical diseases from what I had picked up in India. I picked up cholera and typhoid on top of my malaria and dysentery in India. You picked up all of those in Uganda? 
Yeah. Wow. In India, I also lost one of my kidneys. Oh, my. While I was there, my third year, I had a bad toe. It just swelled up big, huge. I didn't know what to do. I went to a doctor. I went to a young English doctor that that was there nearby. He looked at it and he said, gee, I don't know what's wrong with that. He says, it looks like I may have to lance it. He said, it looks like a lot of pus in there. And he was just about to do that. And I just did not have that much faith in him. At the meantime, the same time, actually, I heard of our new operation in, in India, in Bengal, where I was a missionary group of nuns, missionary sisters of charity. And they, they were just new and newly established themselves in the area where we were. So I, I knew they had a doctor and a nurse and another assistant. So there were three nuns that they opened up their own hospital right there in Dhaka, the capital, where I was stationed. And, and so I went to her, and she said, nothing wrong with your toe. You got an infection in your system somewhere, and it has to be taken care of. So she had me put through the test of the at the local hospital, she sent me over there to get an x-ray of my intersection, and she found that one of my kidneys had swollen up so badly and totally had become dysfunctioning. She says, that's the problem, what's causing the toe to swell up that way. She says, now I can take care of this kidney and take it out for you. But she said, you, you, you better should go back to the States and get it taken care of the hospital because I've never done a kidney mm-hmm. operation before. But he said, she, she said, I'm not afraid to do it. I would be glad to do it if you want me to. I said, by all means, do it here. <laughs> I don't want to get caught back in the States again. So I did in my second year in India. She took my kidney. One one of my kidneys is out. So over 50 years now, I haven't been going around with only one kidney. <laughs> so let that be known to the world. Yeah. It's possible. <laughs> you don't need two kidneys to move around. Yeah. So, Lou, what was the reason you left Uganda? Well, I guess I was in India seven years. And I was supposed to have been seven years in Uganda after six years. After I picked up those additional diseases, I was really in pretty sad shape. And, and my superior says, you better come home. You have enough of this. You can come on back home after six years. Yeah. So that's what I did. So what happened after you got back to the United States? I was asked to uh, stay at, uh, in Washington, D.C., we have a, the Holy Cross Fathers have a house, a residence for students who, who take their last four years of theology before the ordination. And when I came back, I was assigned there. And what they asked me to do was prepare my own lessons. 
and actually, I forgot to tell you, in between my years between India and Africa, that they sent me to, to Rome to study missiology, the science of the missions. So that they brought me back to the States after one year in Rome, and for the next two years, I had my own, prepared my own course of mission studies. How long did you do that for after you got back from Uganda? Well, just about two or three years. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? I finished my book. I had someone help me to type out all of my uh, lectures that I gave, uh, and I thought I had a complete book. I went to Notre Dame and, and showed it to the Ave Maria Press there. Yeah, she looked at it and he said, well, uh, I don't think we have an you know, opportunity to print such a book right now. That's an unusual thing. And missiology, most people didn't know what the word meant in the first place. It, it wasn't that popular that, that a book that would sell. So anyway, they refused to publish it. After that, they sent me to California. They said, well, that's probably the best place for you to go to recover your health. So I went to our only parish church that we were running in California that was in Burbank. Now, Lou, why do you say it was the only parish church? Weren't there a lot of Catholic churches in California? Yes, many Catholic churches, but only one that was actually under the operation of the Holy Cross Fathers. I see. And since I was trying to still maintain my interest in the missions, I was allowed to teach there. And actually, I worked in the parish, which I did for a couple of years. And after about a year and a half, really, right next to the property where this parish, there was a college of Cabrini nuns. You've heard of the Cabrini nuns? No, I have not. That's the Catholic institution that, that were a group of nuns that were uh, excelled in teaching, particularly in all grades, actually, of girls only. And they had one of those schools just very near our parish where we were. And while I was there, one of the nuns came over, and then the superior of the school came over to us one day. The fathers and three of us priests were in this parish. And the pastor said, there was my mother here, mother wants to speak to you. I says, okay, what, what's, what's up? And she said, well, I need one of you to help teach one of this, the senior class of school kids here. So they are a just just terrible group of girls, rebellious. They won't listen to anything we tell them. And we need a man, they thought, to be handle them. So they came to one of us priests. Well, they came to the pastor first, and he said, Well, no, I, I'm sorry, I, I just don't have the time. In town, there was a Catholic hospital also in Burbank chaplain there was a Catholic priest, and so she thought he may have time to come and teach the girls. So she asked him to come, and he did. He tried. 
uh, he had the same experience as the nun that had been teaching them first. In fact, the nun that had been teaching them first lasted only about a month. They had a nervous breakdown. She had to quit. When he came, he, he said, oh, I can handle them, he thought. So he tried to work with him, and he didn't last much more than a month. He says that these kids are impossible. They're, they're helpless. They're, they're just rebellious. I'm quitting. So he quit. They came a third time to the pastor of our church where I was stationed. And he said, well, I'll take them. I'll take them. I know what they need. So he tried. He also failed. He could not. And he says, they're right. These kids are just a bunch of rebellious kids. They won't want to listen to you. For the fourth time, the nun, and she talked to me, she says, please, Father, why don't you try to take the kids? And I said, sure, I'll try, because I, I had a pretty good idea of what in the world was really the problem. It wasn't the problem of the kids being no good. It was a problem of actually the kind of teaching that, that Catholic kids get regularly from the schools, teach school teachers, where they don't allow any questions to be asking. They'll make you think about what is being taught by the church and what is not. These kids were just a bunch of really intelligent girls that were looking for some honest answers from a teacher. So when I had them for a couple of months, I said, what do you kids think about what we're doing? She said, Father, you're at least listening to us. And you seem to agree with a lot of the things that we're criticizing about the church, the doctors of the church. How can you stand up there and be a Catholic priest and teach us like this? Well, I don't think you, you yourself can believe half the things you're teaching us. Well, I says, kids, you, you got something there. I really had to admit that I did have some real doubts for some time about certain things in the church. So I said, give me a few moments to think about the answer. So I did. And after a few minutes, I knew I had to give these kids an honest answer to their question about this and that, that they were asking about the church's teachings. And so what did I do? I simply said, listen, kids, I agree with you. Lots of these things are true, and I've never given that much serious thought. And right now, I am convinced in my own mind that I cannot any longer be a Catholic priest. I cannot any longer teach something which I really don't believe. I took my Roman collar off my neck, put it on the desk in front of me, and says, as of this moment, I am leaving the priesthood. I must be leaving you and this class also because I'm sure Mother Superior won't allow me to stay after she hears what I've done. At that moment, though, when I made that decision to leave 
my Catholic faith, like my Catholic priesthood. I knew that it was the right thing to do. I was only 50 years old then. I'm in, the, I'm in my 90s now, 40 years ago, and I haven't had a single doubt about what I did that was right or wrong. I knew it was exactly what I had to do. So what did you do after that, Lou? Well, I just left the church. And, of course, I was, as soon as I got back to the priest's residence, Mother Superior had called the pastor and told him what I had done. And, of course, he, he was standing at the door. He says, I want you to leave this place immediately. I don't want to see your face again. He was so mad to hear that I had left. And uh, no idea about what might have been my cause or reasonable, okay? Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just had to leave. So I did. I left the city also. I went down to Santa Fe and started to start a new life of my own. And I went down there to uh, figure that they had a Catholic university I went to the pastor, to, to the president, and told them about my situation. I said, you know, I'm desperate. I need a job. I have no way of supporting myself because when I left the church there, I was not given a single penny for support. I was penniless. He said, well, I'd like to have classes and get myself a doctorate in some kind of subject uh, while here. If you could help me in my expenses, he says, well, I will. But he says, under one condition, that you do not speak to the other students here that you were a Catholic priest. Because that might get scandal too much to the students. Okay? So I didn't. I did that for a while, but after a while, I said, I can't stand this any longer. I just can't resist to tell students, my fellow students, my background and why I need to consult with them, how their ideas are, too. And he said, well, if that's the case, you have to leave. Well, someone told me, he said, why don't you go to the, to, to the city school system, which is uh, available for for substitute teachers. And he says, it's a good good job, good paying job. Anyone that's qualified as I was to teach high school kids, I, I, I applied to the city schools, and I, I was accepted immediately, and I did that for a couple of years. Where? In San Diego. After San Diego... Yeah, I ran into a group of people down in the San Diego area, closer to Santa Barbara, actually, area, where uh, I heard about this community that was following Paramahansa Yogananda, the Indian yoga that started his own group of followers in Santa Barbara. He, he, he had this community... One of his disciples opened up a community of his own near Santa Barbara, 
And uh, so I actually went there to find out what this community was all about. And uh, I joined them and began faithfully following the, the mantras, the yoga, and so forth and so forth of the uh, Hindu guru who was really a great saint. I think he was all right. Now, Lou, how did you reconcile your Christianity with the Hindu belief system? I didn't think about Christianity anymore. I didn't, I didn't need to because one of the things that hit me clearly when I made my decision to leave at the high school was that I now understand who God really is. And at that moment, though, when I made my decision to leave the priesthood and and to discover God in my heart, really and truly, I knew God for the first time in my entire life. It was as clear as day. I had not known God before that. I now know God for what he really is. And it was revealed to me very clearly, God is indeed what John says in his gospel. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. If you notice, in Jesus' life, Jesus was a Jew, was he not? Mm-hmm. And, and he followed still Jewish practices. But when he spoke about the Jews, whom did he really condemn among them? Not all the Jews. No. He remained a Jew to the end. But what class of Jews did he really condemn severely? The priesthood. The priesthood, yes. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he called them. They were teaching doctrines of men instead of the doctrines of Moses. And when, when, I, when I saw that clearly for the first time, I said, gee, I, I'd missed that many times in the Bible. This never caught me before. As Jesus told them clearly in the Bible when they asked him, what is the greatest commandment that my God has given to man? And what did he answer? God loves the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole soul, thy whole mind. And then second is like unto this, love thy neighbor as thyself. It was nothing more than love. But first of all, love of God, and then love your neighbor. That's the essence of all religion. That became so clear to me, as it still is to this very day. I found an opportunity to join with a peace group. I was very much interested in the concept of nonviolence as being the practical expression of true love in one's life. Nonviolence is our practical way 
of expressing that love, that you don't be violent to anybody, even the furthest stranger in the forest in Africa, no matter where he or she is, if he or she is a human being, it is one whom you must love as God loves you and everybody else. Love is the answer. Mm-hmm. And love, the opposite of love is violence. Violence in all its different categories. Mm-hmm. So I, I was working with this peace group. They were called the Peacemakers. In California, there's a small group. The reason, the reason I went to this particular group in Eureka, California, was that this peace group had opened up a soup kitchen. The Peacemakers, the area, got together rented a, a downtown store that was vacant and, and had a soup kitchen operation going. And I thought that was a beautiful way to do what I wanted to do all the time, to help the poor, no matter what condition, you know, wherever the poor might be. I want to give to them. So I asked this couple a young couple that opened up this kitchen. They said, oh, yeah, come on over. We'll be glad to have you help us. We need help. So I did. And while I was there, a short time later, another lady with her daughter came from Roseville, California. She had just lost her husband a year or so before, and she wanted to get away from that area where she had been all her life. She wanted to get along, along the coast somewhere. So she ended up in Eureka also. And when she moved there, she found out that this particular mission, this, this, this operation, this soup kitchen was looking for help in the kitchen. So she called up and said, could she come over and, and, and help out? Maybe she wanted to do the same kind of social loving work that's that, that we were doing there. And we said, sure, come on over. We have plenty of work for you to do. And so she did. And she had a daughter, a nine-year-old daughter, still with her at home. But it turned out to be that she was a beautiful young lady. She was a little bit younger than I was. A beautiful, loving person. And after a few months together in the soup kitchen, side by side, cooking, baking, making our own bread, making our own soup. We finally decided that we perhaps belonged together. I had not ever, I would ever fall in love with a woman. I never had any desire really to get married. As many of the priests that I know that have left the priesthood just simply because they wanted to get married. And uh, she would invite me over to her house. She had herself once bought a beautiful home and just on the outskirts of the city, she and her daughter. And, of course, I never refused a free dinner, uh, so I always accepted her invitation. And uh, I found out later that uh, I was really getting fond of her. And not thinking about marriage as such. We just became very friendly. But uh, one day, after 
I had had a nice dinner with her that she fixed. We were sitting around the fireside, and we got talking. I said to her, I said, Gee, this is a beautiful, beautiful setting, isn't it? And she said, she just turned her back to me and said very shyly, Lou, you know, if you should ask me to marry you, I would say I would. And it took me totally by surprise. I really was. Didn't expect that at all. But when I did, I said, I can't answer you now. I really didn't remember the thought of getting married, and I didn't. Not even to her. But after she asked me, in other words, to marry her, I had to think about it. So what did I do? I went home that night. I said, I'll let you know in a couple of days my answer. So I did. I took two or three days. On the third day, I said to myself, i got to find an answer for what, what my dear lady asked me. Uh, what can I do? What can I say? I'm going to look in the Bible for an answer. So for, for the first time in my life, I found in the Bible an answer to a practical problem that I was facing. I looked in the index in the back of the book, and the Bible says, under true religion. And what do you think I found? Only one reference to that title, true religion. I don't know. Do you know? No. It says, true religion is caring for widows in their need and fatherless children in their need. That's true religion. What do you think about that? Well, it sounds like an answer to me. <laughs> it's a great answer. In fact, it struck me immediately this is my answer. As soon as I found that, I called her up. And said, Dear one, I'll be seeing you tomorrow. I'll give you my answer. So I did. Went back for another meal the next day. And then after the dinner, I told her what I found in the Bible. And as I looked at her, I said, I made up my mind. I accept your invitation to be your husband. And she said, oh, how wonderful. <laughs> and then she said, well, I have to tell my daughter. Mm. Her daughter was in her own bedroom, in the next room, off the main room. She was reading a book in bed. She went in there to tell her, she says, Kim, is her name, Kim, what do you think? Dad Lou and I are going to get married. Poor Kim, she said, you can't do that, Mother. He's a priest. Priests don't marry. You can't marry a priest. And then I just started crying because she loved me. We got along quite well the few times we were together. She liked me for some strange reason. So my wife-to-be came out of her bedroom and told me what she said. And she said, didn't know what to tell her. 
But then I said, well, once I marry him, he will no longer be a priest. He'll be just your father. Ooh, she said, she got happy, jumped out of bed, came into the room with us, and we were dancing around in circles. She said, I got a father, God, I got a father. She was so happy that she had a father. So that's not really how I got married. And I must say I haven't had a single moment of remorse. Nothing but happy, happy days. Mm-hmm. 34 years of marriage, and we've never had a quarrel. So, Lou, let's jump to the future here and describe for me how you ran into the Baha'i faith. Well, we were not acquainted at all with the Baha'i faith for years. Later, we were just trying to spend our time every morning and evening. We said our prayers together. One day, we said to move to Vacaville, California. Now, Vacaville is a small town, and while we were there, we were looking in the newspaper every day, and in the paper there was this ad was written by a young girl, high school graduate, who has just come back from the Holy Land, from Israel, the world center of the Baha'i faith is in Israel on Mount Carmel, the place where Isaiah is supposed to return. But anyway, this girl high school graduate, had written this little article about her experiences of spending a year voluntary service at the headquarters in Haifa, Israel. And what she said in her article was just the basic ideas about the Baha'i faith, that it was actually brought to the world by what Jesus had promised to send, and we call the second coming of Christ. He claimed to be that second coming of Christ. So we got to look in what she had to offer, talked to her a few times. She gave us a couple of books to read, and in no time we were convinced of something really special about this religion that he brought certainly is time that we should have expect the return of Christ after all these years. What led us directly into accepting this faith is that the people who, who were Baha'is, a group of Baha'is in Vacaville, who, who met every week, there's no churches. Baha'is don't have churches, don't have ministers, nothing like that meet together in the individual homes. They don't use the word church. Because there's, an, there's no ministers at all in, in the Baha'i faith. As we were uh, thinking about what to do, the, the people in the Baha'is there gave us several books to read. And one of the books was The Life of the Bob. The Bible was the equivalent of John the Baptist in the life of Jesus. He was a forerunner that announced the coming of Jesus. 
And in the case of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, he had a forerunner who also announced his coming before he came. And, and so he, they told me to read his book. He wrote a book also. As I was reading that book one afternoon at home, I was lying in my bed in, in the back of the house, and right, right next to the, my bedroom was a big, big window leading out to the backyard, and behind the backyard was a giant tree, a camphor tree, a big, 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 beautiful camphor tree. And while I was lying down there, I was looking out, and suddenly I heard this terrible, terrible racket going on out there. I couldn't figure out why I was there, so I opened up the curtains to look out, and what did I see? I saw this tree, this huge tree with the giant limbs in all directions, just absolutely crowded with a bunch of crows, big, ugly, <laughs> devouring crows that were out for the life. I said, what these things are doing? And they were, they were making that career noise, cracking the noise. And uh, I said, I'm going to have to get rid of them. They can't sleep. I'm going to get my siesta. So I went out in the backyard and took up some stones and started throwing them up at the tree. <laughs> and as I did, of course, they all flew away. Except one bird did not fly away, and that was a giant owl. He was a giant, beautiful, standing there on one of the limbs in all his glory, standing, looking at me, and not budging. I threw stones at him, and he did not budge at all, but all the crows left, but this owl stayed there. So I said, this is unusual. So I just let him, let him be. He was doing no harm. He wasn't making any noise either. So I went back to sleep, and I thought I was sleeping, and then again, the birds came back after I had gotten down, and they started doing the same thing. And I went out again the second time and threw stones at them, chased them away, and they left. But by this time, I said to myself, something is wrong here, something is strange. Why, this owl, this huge, beautiful owl, was not paying any attention to any crows. They were not attacking him, but the crows were actually threatening him by their howling. But he did not pay any attention to them. By this time, then, my wife returned from work. She said, how are you doing? I said, I got a problem with these crows in the backyard. So what are we going to do about them? I pointed to them. They were still, they came back again. They were out there crying, shouting at the owl. And uh, I said, what will we do with these kids? I said, well, there's something telling us. Somebody says, trying to tell us something. 
And I said, well, I, I, I can't imagine what it might be except there's, there's a miracle happening. These kids, these birds are a sign of something. What is it? And I, I did this immediately. The first thing came to mind that these birds, these, these crows, were the, the evil forces that, that were trying to destroy the beautiful life of this owl. But he was not to be disturbed. He stood his own. No fear whatsoever. You know what the thought came to me? That is the mob. The, 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 the precursor. And explain why you thought that, Lou. Well, there's just all kinds of uh, opposition, mm. voices of disagreement. And, and the truth is, as I was reading about the mob, he suffered an awful lot of persecution himself before he was actually assassinated, as well as Baha'u'llah himself suffered a lot of persecution before he died. And so these are some kind of evil forces that were after the mob. But as I was thinking about that, our eldest daughter, that is my wife's eldest daughter, who lived in the area, and she said, so what are you guys doing back there? And we told her what happened. And she said, I said, look, still there, the owl. But the crows had all left. She said, well, what happened? I said, well, there were a bunch. The whole tree was filled with crows. Those owl, the only one left. I said, something strange about this. I told her what it meant to me. And she herself was not a Baha'i, or we were not either. I said, I think we are told we need to become Baha'is. In the shelter of the Baha'i faith, we will find peace. We were looking for something for years together. And we went back into the kitchen, and my wife noticed that all our liquor was gone in the kitchen. She said, what did you do with all our liquor? I said, I threw it all down the sink. I said, I'm sorry, but Baha'is don't drink. Alcohol, it's one of the forbidden things. Well, she finally forgave me. Now, this was in 1992. Let you know that we are perfectly happy. We've never been happier. And one of the the secrets of happiness for Baha'is is what Baha'u'llah tells us all to practice this thought constantly. Have in your attitude toward everybody around you at all times, radiant acquiescence. Those two words together spell the type of attitude that we try to live by because they do express the same law that Christ gave, love one another as I have loved you. It's all about love. That's what religion, that's what Baha'is are told. Love is the answer, just as Jesus also taught. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lou Meyer. 
a former priest who became a Baha'i. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.